Good morning. Welcome to Soul Sanctuary. My name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, Pastor Jerry is off in the Dominican Republic. If you follow him on social media, you will see that. Uh, context for that, after a week of vacation, he headed off to the DR with the team from Living Word Temple, uh, our sister church in the north of Winnipeg. Uh, they, one of their missions fields is the DR, and so they invited Pastor Jerry to come on out. Uh, so he has gone out. Uh, he was texting me just, uh, just yesterday. So the original intention in going out was to form a fellowship with the intention of eventually forming a denomination among 85 churches that had been recently planted in the DR. And it turns out, I think at their last training, they had 145 pastors come out uh, to build a fellowship with the intention of forming a denomination. So essentially, you have all these new churches, all these new believers, and they have no structure. They have no systems. And so Pastor Jerry is out there with the team making it happen. And us here at Soul Sanctuary this morning, we are in the book of Matthew. It's funny. So we got a new lighting system. So, uh, well, not new lighting system, but new lights on here. We know they were too bright last week. We apologize. They were a little bright in worship too. We got it. They're on the dimmers now, all right? So, uh, but at the same time, these lights are way brighter on me. So the only thing I see is the people on their cell phones. It's hilarious. It's good. It's good. Um, I don't, I don't care. Take notes on your phone. It's good. We're in the Bible together in the book of Matthew. So uh, last week, Pastor Jordan McClellan was with us, and he taught us from Matthew 26. And if you remember back to last week, what he did was track Jesus through the Garden of Gethsemane and into his arrest. And so Jesus is arrested, and then he's dragged before the high priest and the, the Jewish ruling elite, and he is brought up on charges of blasphemy. At the end of, of, of last week's gathering, Pastor Jordan asked us the question. He, he, he said, whose kingdom are you pursuing? Are you pursuing the kingdom of God or are you pursuing your own kingdom? And we left on the note uh, of, of wondering, of asking ourselves, what will we do when the kingdom of God presses up against the kingdom that we're building for ourselves? How will we react when God's kingdom in which he is establishing pushes against our personal desires, pushes against our comforts, what are we going to do? Whose kingdom do we choose to build? And this morning we pick back up on that note, right where we left off in Matthew 26. And before we go to our text this morning, I, I, I want you to dial back in your memory from the weeks past where there's a couple things going on. Where Jesus is, is originally around the table for the Last Supper with his disciples. They're sharing a meal together. And at that point he foretold. He told his disciples, you guys are all going to desert me by the night's end. And, and, and Peter, you're going to deny me in front of others. And that, and that night all his disciples are like, no, we're not. We're in this for the long haul with you. And Peter says, uh, even if I have to die, I will die with you. And it's in the course of an evening that this is all taking place. So they have dinner, then they're in the garden together. Jesus is praying, he's stressing out. And Judas ends up bringing a company of men to arrest Jesus. And Peter, he holds true to his word, or at least he starts to. He draws his sword, he cuts off an ear. Only to be rebuked by Jesus. Jesus asking Peter, do you think I'm defenseless? Do you think I can't call down angels to defend me from these dudes who want to arrest me? 
But this has to happen in order to fulfill prophecy. So Jesus is taken away, and Peter follows in the background. And that is where we pick it up. In Matthew 26, verses 69 to 75. Let's go. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl had come to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. And then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And Peter went outside and wept bitterly. It's in the matter of one evening that Peter goes from, I will be with you always, to I don't know the man. I tried really hard to think of some funny anecdote or story or something that, that could really just bring this to life. But I was hit with the weight of I don't know the man. There was no good metaphor to run with this morning to illuminate this passage. All we have today was scripture is scripture. And that, that the idea of, as I was wrestling with this text, like, there's not much happy here. Nothing really makes me feel good about this. I'd like to skip a couple uh, pages to the whole redemption of the world stuff. But here we are, on an unpopular passage that we don't love to talk about, with no, with no cool little story or personal anecdote. And it led me to think about how we actually look at Scripture. When we read the Bible and we come to passages like this, we're hit with the reality of the Scripture. We're hit with the weightiness of the Scripture. When we read the Bible, we don't search for verses that speak to me. We don't search for verses that, that make me feel good in this moment. You know, it just hits me where I'm at. That's not how we read the Bible. Does the Bible, does it have something to offer us as far as leadership instruction in seminars? Yeah, yeah, it probably does. Can we take a book of the Bible and, you know, reduce it down to like three main principles, write a book about it and sell it? Yeah, it's a bit of a stretch, but we could do that. But if our readings of Scripture are limited for what they do for us, I think our approach is then wrongly placed. What good is the reading of Peter's denial of Jesus if we are using the Bible to meet our own ends? This would be a passage that we quickly just flip the page. I mean, even more so, next week we're on to Judas hanging himself. Yeah, I think I got the tough passage. Pastor Jerry's going to tackle suicide next week. But what do we do with passages like this? This is why we preach from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. Here we are again. To read scripture faithfully, 
We must recognize where we are in the drama of Scripture. The Old Testament into the New Testament tells the work of a triune God who is at work, active and present in the world. God didn't create and then leave. He is here now and we... We faithfully interpret Scripture. We read Scripture with the illumination of the Holy Spirit who is the author of Scripture. And we find ourselves here not saying, what does this have for me? But where do I find myself in this drama that's unfolding? It changes the way that we read. I love to read. I thoroughly enjoy reading. Vacation for me is somewhere warm with a book. That's all I need. I like paper books. I love having a library. Uh, I read with a pen and a highlighter. I mark everything up. I dog ear my pages. And then I really crease the stems. Like, look at that, right? I just break it. Books are meant to be read. I like ebooks, but they don't have a smell. Huh? There's something about the smell of a book. You purists who are like, don't touch a book with a pencil. They're meant to be used, in my opinion. It's a rather utilitarian approach I have. I even mark up my fiction. Every year I try to read two books on entrepreneurship. Why? So that I can learn lessons from people who have gone before me, who have established business practices that can help me as I pursue my business practices that sharpen me. I highlight, I dog ear, I come back to, I write little summaries in my phone of all the key points that stood out to me. Uh, every year I try to read two to three books on, on leadership development or, or teams. People who have built positive teams, you know. Like I, I, at Soul Sanctuary, my desire is that our team shows up to work and loves to be at work. I, I want them to be passionate about what they do. And so I, I go to those resources, people who have gone before me, who have written it down and given it to me. And again, I'm, I'm highlighting and I'm underlining and I'm dog-earing. And it goes on the shelf and I... I, I take the books off when I'm working on something, and I pile all the lessons together. The way we read textbooks is much like this. We're, we're trying to utilize the information. How does it apply here to my life? But the Bible doesn't serve our utilitarian ends. It's not just meant to be utilized for this current moment or this project I'm working on. It doesn't fit the Holy Spirit authored Scripture. And when we read it, the work of the Holy Spirit is active in our hearts, illuminating what it means to us. Scripture is best read in the context of, the, of community. Uh, Paul tells Timothy, don't neglect the public reading of Scripture. That's why we read the Bible every week on stage. We learn from it together, corporately, why you should be in a life group that studies the Bible. When we approach Scripture, you and I, our attitude cannot be, what am I going to get out of this? But we must come to it with a posture of humility. We must be willing to allow the Scripture to cut us down to size. We must be willing to allow the Scripture to show us something about our hearts, not that I can take from it and apply to my life, but that it can convict me as the story of the triune God. That it, can, it, it will speak to me through the Holy Spirit, but it's not just the verses in the books that I want to read. There's a greater narrative going on here. 
To read Scripture faithfully is to recognize where we are in the drama. We're not passive observers here. We're not critics evaluating how good the story is. And we're not popular authors trying to reduce this down to principles so that we can sell books. Today, you and I, as we find ourselves in the drama, we're Peter. This morning, you are Peter. I am Peter. Verse 69, now Peter was sitting in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. And she says, you were with Jesus of Galilee, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. The first instance, Peter is found geographically in the courtyard. This is where, this is where he is. He is outside the place where Jesus is being questioned by the high priest and, the, and the, the Jewish religious elite. They're questioning Jesus. You know, there's a mockery that's going on uh, that Pastor Jordan opened up, us up to last week. This is all happening, but Peter is outside. He's blending in with the crowd. And a servant girl, someone who probably shouldn't strike fear into the core of who Peter is, she comes up to him and she finds him in a vulnerable moment. She's like, uh, I, I saw you with the guy who's inside right now. This commotion that has gathered us all here, you were with that guy. And Peter, caught up in the moment, responds with, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Peter may very well still have blood on his hands from earlier in the evening, just mere hours ago, when he cut off somebody's ear trying to protect Jesus. The dude is zealous for the cause. We can't question that about Peter. We know. But something has him gripped. And it's in this moment where a servant girl approaches him that his whole world is rocked. Imagine what's going on in his head. Why would Jesus rebuke me in front of everybody else? Man, Jesus, I was ready, I was ready to die for you. And you put me in my place. Peter's questioning what's going on here. And in this moment, when the spotlight hits him, and somebody simply mentions that they had seen him with Jesus, he has a choice. Do I identify with Jesus in this moment, or do I separate myself from Jesus in this moment? And I think in Peter trying to make sense of this situation, as he's trying to reconcile everything that has happened that evening, he comes to the mind that, well, maybe I don't have to identify with Jesus, but I also don't have to reject Jesus. And Peter does, or Peter takes a third path. I won't totally deny Jesus, but I won't identify myself with him either. I just don't know what you're talking about. And Peter's denial of Jesus starts with the foolish belief that there's a third way. That I don't have to identify with Jesus, but I also don't have to go against him either. I can be morally neutral in this situation. The temptation for Peter is the temptation for you, and it's the temptation for me, because we're Peter this morning. We believe the lie that we can skirt around the implications of our words, of our decisions. We wrongly believe that moral neutrality is somehow a thing. So this last week, Lauren and I, uh, uh, coming out of Halloween, or into Halloween right before, uh, Lauren and I, we were talking about ghosts. 
And uh, literally, we're sitting down in our family room talking about ghosts, having it out. These are the conversations that we have. Uh, a blogger that Lauren followed on Instagram had posted a whole bunch of stories uh, on her uh, Instagram account talking about the ghosts that lived in her house. And she was sincere, and she's talking to the camera and her hundreds of thousands of people who follow her. And she's like, yeah, there's ghosts in my house, and they're friendly ghosts. You know, they don't terrorize my kids. He just helps himself to whatever he needs in the cupboard. And I just, like, see this ghost. And so Lauren brought that, and we're like, we're talking this through. And like, how does a Christian perspective look at ghosts who are just eating from your cupboard but not traumatizing your children? And then the, the, the lady asked on her Instagram story a question, and she said, who else has had similar experiences? And then she starts to repost these. And like hundreds of people writing to her being like, I have a ghost too! I have a ghost too, right? They just drink my alcohol. Now you have a problem. <laughs> but the ghosts being present in this conversation that Lauren and I had, it, the first thing that came to mind was C.S. Lewis. In Christian Reflections, he said this, There's no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and is counterclaimed by Satan. In the case of ghosts who appear friendly, and that's not why we came together to talk, but I think it illustrates the point. In the case of ghosts who, who appear friendly, a Christian worldview can confidently say that it's, if it's not of God, then it is against God. As we continued uh, to, to read, uh, we saw, and as we listened to her story on Instagram, as she kept posting updates and updates, we saw how her... her, her uh, De de desire to know more about the ghosts that were in her house led her to hire a medium who would come and talk to the dead presence in her house and tell her what they're all about and tell her the, the, the past. And we know from scripture that, that to discuss anything with dead spirits is strictly forbidden. And while the ghost is not traumatizing your children, it's leading her to consult with mediums, which is not really a morally neutral decision. And so, like the words that Peter shared in his first denial of Jesus, or the ghosts on Instagram stories, there is no action, no word spoken, no idea that is morally neutral. On a practical level, leaving people to make moral choices on what they feel in the moment to be right leads us to personal destruction and it fast-tracks us to communal destruction. There is no line that we can walk which puts us on the route to moral neutrality. The Bible doesn't support this idea. And here Peter, he's walking this thin line of carefully crafted prose. Of a gray, of a, of a gray area. That keeps him from bearing the burden and the responsibility of his decisions. Pleading ignorance is not bliss when our words and our actions carry with them the power of life and death. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather scatters. Peter was there. Peter knows these words. 
finding the path of least resistance in your life, the one that neither identifies with Jesus or rebels against Jesus, does not fit within the Christian framework. The decisions that you make today have consequences of the highest order. We like to think that we can walk this line of neither right or wrong, but Jesus has made it clear to us. So for Peter, what's the consequence of his response? Verse 71, then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath and he said, I don't know the man. After his first denial, Peter moves from the courtyard to the gateway. Peter's decision, which seems morally neutral, right? I'm neither for Jesus or against Jesus. I just don't know what you're talking about. The next step for Peter is physical distance away from Jesus. Think about the implication of that for a moment. It's not he's like, I, just, I don't know what you're talking about. Let me get closer to Jesus to, to go figure out what's going on. No, it's I don't know what you're talking about. As he walks away. Peter's response does not drive him closer to Jesus. It drives him away from Jesus. And after getting to the gateway, he's confronted again. Surely you were with Jesus. And now Peter, in a short time, his story has gone from I don't know what you're talking about to I don't know the man. Peter is refusing to even acknowledge Jesus. His neutral response in his first denial gives way to an overt lie. It's not only a lie, but it's the breaking of an oath. In Matthew 5, uh, Jesus forbids the making of oaths. Peter was probably there for this. If you can remember back to us teaching on that passage, uh, he was rebuking those who made ceremonial oaths but were just hypocrites. And Jesus rebuked hypocrisy over and over and over and over. And Peter heard. Yet here was Peter. Disowning Jesus and going against his teaching all in one action. Verse 73. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. You have a Galilean accent, bro. Quit trying to hide. Then he began to call down curses, he, Peter, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. On the third confrontation, Peter becomes irate. He is called out on his accent. He has no defense. They know that he was with Jesus. And his response is to curse, and his response is to swear, I don't know the man. And Peter's downward spiral into the sin of denial, from disassociation to complete rejection, it mirrors ours because we're Peter. We're Peter denying Jesus. I'm Peter denying Jesus. Peter was proud and self-assured. Surely I will be with you until death. In the garden... Jesus begged him to stay awake and pray. Please, Peter, watch and pray. This is the heaviest night of my life. And Peter falls asleep. He was zealous in his defense of Jesus, but he was zealous for a physical fight. He had the chance to follow Jesus closely after Jesus was arrested. But instead... He kept his distance. 
And ultimately, Peter ends up in our passage today denying even knowing Jesus. One sin led to another, led to another, led to another, until he was completely distanced from Jesus. Physically distanced from Jesus really illustrates to us the state of his heart and how far he was away from Jesus. 74 and 75, immediately a rooster crowed. And then Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside, out of the courtyard, through the gateway, away from where Jesus was being questioned. And he wept bitterly. It's at this point that Peter hears the rooster crow and he remembers the words of Jesus foretelling his denial, weeping at the recognition of his denial, Peter flees. He gets out of there. His sin has driven a wedge between him and Jesus. His sin creates distance. But... It's the remembrance of Jesus' words for Peter, which are his first step to repentance. Peter had to be broken before he was built back up. And for you and I today, as Peter, our encouragement from the scripture is in that remembering the words of Jesus can change us and can save us. We go to, to 2 Corinthians 7. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and he talks to them about 1 Corinthians. The, the, uh, uh, arguably, the second letter he sent them is 1 Corinthians. It's a long story, but it's great. So in 2 Corinthians, arguably the third letter that he sent to them, 2 Corinthians 7, Paul says to them, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Yo, some of you need to hear that. Verse 10, godly sorrow brings repentance. Repentance leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. The Corinthians were living immorally. They're a church of people. And in 1 Corinthians, we read, Paul's calling them out. He's like, some dude is sleeping with his stepmom among you. And he is correcting them. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul offers them a word of correction. And it ain't an easy word of correction. Go read 1 Corinthians. Actually, after we're done the book of Matthew, a little teaser for you. We're going into 1 and 2 Corinthians. And those are the next two books that we're going to teach, teach through. So 1 Corinthians is Paul's first address to the, to the church in, uh, in Corinth. And then there's a missing letter that, that scholars believe is somewhere in the middle. And then 2 Corinthians, where we are now. 
And Paul is just giving it to them. And here, he says, my giving it to you, inspired by the Spirit, sending this letter your way, has actually changed something in you. He's like, but for a little second, I felt sorry for you that I came down a little too hard. But wait, it has led you to godly sorrow, which leads to repentance, which leads to salvation, which leads to a life of no regret. Paul commends the Corinthians for their desire, for their longing, and their concern to see justice done and to live in a manner which is pleasing to God. But he doesn't commend them before acknowledging their repentance and salvation. When we map out the life of Peter, we see that his story doesn't end in bitter weeping outside. In John 20, we find Peter running to the tomb after hearing that Jesus' body was not there. We find Peter talking with Jesus in John 21 and Jesus restoring him with a call to feed his sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Then feed my sheep. And so what does Peter do? Exactly that. We find Peter preaching a sermon and performing performing miracles in the temple in Acts 2. We find Peter sharing the gospel with many right throughout the book of Acts. We find Peter imprisoned for his faith. We find Peter writing letters to churches. Church fathers Tertullian and Origen, they tell us of Peter's death. One in which he was crucified, put to death for his faith. This is the life of Peter. This is the life of Peter of Matthew 26, where the subheading reads, Peter disowns Jesus. This same Peter. And so what do we make of the life of Peter? If Peter's life doesn't preach the deepest possible forgiveness, whose does? If Peter's life doesn't preach restoration from folly, from overt public denial of even knowing Jesus, apostasy is the word. If his life doesn't preach renewal, then whose does? We see through the life of Peter that complete restoration is found through repentance. Through a bitter weeping over our sin. Through clinging to Christ as our Savior. The purpose of Jesus Christ is on full display through the life of of Peter. It's a restoration. It's a second chance. And so I ask you this morning, when was the last time that with a contrite heart you confessed your sins to God and to your fellow believer? When was the last time that you felt the liberation in hearing the proclamation, you are forgiven? When was the last time that you wept bitterly at your wretchedness? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch like me. 
When was the last time that you praised God for your restoration? This is a thing in the Christian life is that every confession is met with a proclamation. Every confession of sin and humbling of self that says that this sin has me captive and God, I need to give you this sin. I confess of my sin. I, I repent. I turn from my sin. It's met with a proclamation. The proclamation is that you are forgiven. They go hand in hand in the Christian life. You and I have a need to experience restoration. You and I have a need to experience a second chance. In Mark 16, the angel of the Lord says to, to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene, at the sight of the empty tomb, they say, go tell the disciples and Peter. Go tell the guys who deserted Jesus. And go tell, tell the dude that denied him. Tell them the good news that Jesus is no longer in the tomb. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Go tell the disciples and Jordan. Go tell the disciples and you. This is the hope that we need to hear. This is the truth. This is the reality of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Go tell the disciples and Peter. And it is the end, Peter, that allows Peter to confidently proclaim in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 5. Same dude writing this. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has forgiven us. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Peter, go tell the disciples, and Peter. And into an inheritance, listen to me, Christian, brother and sister, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, through who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. At the end of all days, Jesus will return. about you, but I'm preaching to myself this morning. Brother and sister, upon the confession of your sin and your restoration at the cross of Jesus Christ, a life of freedom and hope eternal can be yours. And when we read the story of Peter and his denial of Jesus, we recognize that we are Peter. And as such, I think it's only fitting if we move into a time together here and now of active response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think we'd be foolish to just leave here and jump in our cars. So let's take a little bit of time. I've only preached for 32 minutes and 59 seconds. We got a little bit of time. You might be in here and have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. You may never have had that moment where you said, I need to turn from my sin because it's killing me. And I need to reunite, reorient my heart 
onto Christ. In a moment, we're going to pray together corporately. And my invitation for you is to make this your prayer. A prayer of accepting who Jesus is and who he said he is. Accepting the good news and accepting the mantle His uh, in our team huddle. So in the, this morning, we're all together. All of our, our people who serve, all the servant leaders here at Soul Sanctuary, we're in a big circle right here. And our internship director, Mike, is sharing. And he's sharing uh, that, that, that the burden Jesus puts on us, the yoke on our shoulders, is light. That Jesus gives us a new way. A way that is a path of light and not a path of destruction. A way that is a path of renewal. And, and not getting constantly sucked into our sin. And so if you want that this morning, if you want the life that Jesus promises to us, life in all of its fullness, a life of restoration, a life of forgiveness, 2 Corinthians, a life of no regret. Whew. Then as we pray that together, make it your prayer. And this prayer, we, uh, uh, the last Friday of last month, Lauren and I, we were at youth at, at Young and Wild. So our junior high and our senior highs gathered together um, at the end of each month. And we're sitting there and we're listening to our interns share from the scripture. And one of our interns leads our junior high and senior high students in a path or in a prayer of repentance. And it's a powerful moment. And I was like, we got to do that on a Sunday. So on the screens now is a prayer. Let's pray this aloud together. Most merciful God, Stand with me as we sing.
So what's next? Here at Soul, we believe in taking the next step. I mean, it's great. If the word spoke to you this morning, if you recognize that you are Peter, fantastic. That is what the preaching of God's word is intended to do. It's the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart. It's convicting you right where you're at. But what's next? If we believe in taking the next step, then we want to help you take the next step. If you know you need to repent of your sins and you need to feel the liberation that comes from getting things out in the open. <laughs> I was sitting with a guy this week across the table and he's like, I'm dealing with some sin. And it's like, what is that sin? And he was like, well, it's kind of this. It's like, no, what is that sin? Oh, it's, a, it's, it's like this. I'm like, keep going. Get it out. Quit holding on to it in your heart. Spit it out. Acknowledge it for what it is. Sin dragging you down. If you got that sin in your life, like Peter had his denials of Jesus, then find a fellow believer and confess your sin. If you need to confess your sin to somebody who's a safe, trusted person, Andrew, Mike, Lauren, Brianne, I love you guys. Can you go to that cross? If you need to confess your sin to somebody, they're ready to take your confession. You better believe that after you're done, they're going to look you in the eye and say, you are forgiven. Hey, some of your sin is big and it has consequences. And you might need help navigating those consequences. Let's talk it through. We're, we're, we're pastors here at Seoul, but we don't just like, you know, sit in an office all day, drink coffee and do life with people. We help people through the messy parts of their lives, how to deal with the consequences of our sin. So first step is you calling it what it is, sin, confessing it, and we'll walk the road together. Okay. We have prayed and we have asked for forgiveness. And so here is your blessing this morning. In times of old, when giving a blessing, the one giving it would extend hands, and those receiving the blessing would do likewise. So if you want a blessing, which is your proclamation of forgiveness and freedom in Christ, then extend your hands. May the Almighty God have mercy on you, soul sanctuary, for he has forgiven your sins through Jesus Christ our Lord. May he strengthen you in all goodness, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit he might keep you in eternal life. Amen. Be blessed. Go in peace. Go forgiven. And we'll see you next week.